I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in machines, both technological and ideological. This is where we transcend the isms we use to distinguish ourselves and find common cause against our common enemies, most of which are of our own making anyway. Turn on, tune in, Team Human. All social, no distance. Playing for Team Human today, founders of the Stop Shopping Church and Choir, Reverend Billy and Savitri D. Charging that wildness in yourself and in others around you, I think, does promote a different respect for the earth. I, I have to say, like, that's just my belief that, that wildness, it is, it's our job, Billy's and mine, that's our job here on earth is to to make wildness where we can and how we can. Savitri and Billy will show us how to retrieve the spirit of play and performance in our shared effort to keep this planet thriving. It's never too late to save your soul. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I actually thought that we would maybe slow down Team Human over the covid lockdown on uh, the very first episode of the lockdown period got a few uh, less listeners than we usually do but after that it started to surge again and i've got tons of incoming email actually asking us for more content than ever people have time they're home and uh, looking to find some others. So we are going to up our schedule back to a weekly schedule rather than every other week during the, the rest of this. And maybe we'll keep going with that again after. That was our old schedule. It was just a little hard to keep up with doing these shows every week and keeping the quality high enough. But uh, let's go for it. You can support us in that effort, along with new supporters like River Lanky, Nathan Werner, Victor Friedman, Louisa Letty, 
and Melinda Barnes by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support or go to patreon.com slash teamhuman and you can get all sorts of stuff. But most of all, you can help keep this show going. You can also listen to Team Human on X-Ray in Portland, Oregon, KXRC in Durango, Colorado, and KSPC in Claremont, California. I wrote a whole bunch of articles and things when the crisis first hit. I was working really harder than ever and overwhelming Medium and some other outlets and even myself with a number of articles. And uh, that created a bunch of great monologue material, but I'm actually going to go back to freeform monologues now that I'm going to stop writing for a little bit and work on some plays and other ideas. And uh, most of you tend to like these more freeform monologues better Anyway, so here it goes. First off, alienating crises like what we're going through right now is really what Team Human was here for in the first place. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the the novel aspect of novel coronavirus is not novel at all. That the isolation that we're experiencing now is really just an extreme version of what we've been going through up till now, a more consciously enacted version, really, of what we've been experiencing And in some ways, that's good. You know, if you ever are doing something that you don't like, or you've got some weird habit, or you're holding your shoulder in a way that's painful, sometimes what they teach you to do is like consciously do it. In other words, do the thing worse so that you can feel what it's like to do this thing that you don't really like, and then you can let go of it. So you can sort of see how we do that. So now that we can see what is it like not to be able to really make close eye contact with people, what is it not to go outside? What is it not to experience your local merchants and businesses and local exchange? Well, gosh, now that we're doing that consciously, it's going to feel a whole lot easier, I think, to undo that. But the other thing that's happening is sort of the ethical and moral choices that we make or the ways in which we make them tend to reveal themselves to us when they're in uh, such amplified versions, when they're so extreme, when they're so stark. I feel like what's happening now is there's a, a kind of a karma-like effect, only the, the karma is happening in real time instead of in, in some future lifetime. And one of the ethical quandaries I guess I've, I've wandered into lately is around the question of this uh, antibody testing. There's this idea, I guess it was floated originally in Italy, that assuming people, if they have the virus, that they can't catch it again, then all you need to really do is good antibody testing on people. And then if they've already had the virus, according to the antibody test, then they can get some kind of a COVID pass, which means now they can go back to work and start earning money and doing things because their blood tests show that they've already uh, developed immunity. And on the surface, I mean, it sounds great, right? I'd love to find out that I am immune, that I've already had it or was exposed to it, and that I can go and do good things and even work with people who who are sick, you know, go into the hospitals and take care of people. But there was also this part of it that bugged me, which was that if you need a COVID pass of some kind to get back to work in order to go and get your job back or a job, 
would there be people, like really poor people who are really struggling, who would take the risk and just say, well, look, I'm just going to go out and intentionally catch COVID so I can just get through this disease, get the damn COVID working pass and be allowed to go out and work for my family. And I posed that question, I guess in the wrong place. I posed it on Twitter and I ended up getting attacked from both sides. So there was this this critique from the unwoke side of Twitter was that I was calling poor people stupid, that I was being like Hillary or something, saying that these are the unwashed masses who don't understand anything. And they were saying, gosh, poor people aren't so stupid that they would go get COVID to work. They know that COVID could make them sick. And They watch TV. They know the virus is dangerous. Do I really think that they're so stupid they're going to put themselves in jeopardy? But what? I mean, what are they thinking? That poor people put themselves in jeopardy if they did. They're doing it because they're stupid? I mean, do you think that a woman who becomes a prostitute in order to support herself, that she's doing that because she's stupid? That poor people who end up stealing food or something, that they're doing these crimes because they're stupid. It's like, no, they're doing it because they're poor. They're desperate. This is like Jean Valjean. I stole a loaf of bread and they had to feed a baby, right? It's, it's, not, uh, it's not stupidity. That's my whole point. Are people going to be so poor, especially a month or two or three or four into this, that they do resort to putting themselves into danger? And I was even more surprised then I got critiqued by the by the overwoke contingent that my statement was somehow patronizing to the poor, that it's patronizing to the poor to suggest that they would resort to doing something like that. Again, as if they're I'm I'm suggesting that they're stupid. And no, I'm not. And and how could even the, the woke side be so deaf? to what happens to people when they're poor, to the choices that people are forced to make. How has our woke side gotten so brittle and so reactive? It was kind of stunning to me. And I guess part of it is just because people are locked up and they're freaked out, right? They're locked up, they're freaked out. It's like this Greek drama that we're living in. I'm not even saying that we shouldn't use an antibody test to get certain people back to work. It's a great idea. It would be great to have that information. All I'm really saying that is that if we do, that we better also provide for the poor who are trying to survive through this so that they're not forced to make such decisions. You know, it would be a great way for Amazon or UPS to get more workers on the front lines. You know, get the poor people, get just poor people, come on, just catch this thing and get back on the assembly line. But how does that play out then? Think about a, a two-tiered society that this would create, where people who've been exposed or who, who get exposed end up serving those who remain uninfected. So the wealthiest can hold out the longest in total isolation, right? And in several months, what do we end up with? An underclass of exposed workers serving unexposed wealthy people and, I guess, vulnerable people? And then how does that play out? I'm 
also really concerned the way we hear about the emphasis on protecting the weak, protecting the elderly, that we'd all be able to go to the mall and go back to school and live normal lives if we didn't have all those elderly and immune compromised to worry about. There's even a certain kind of rip the band-aid off quality to a lot of the rhetoric around this. Let's just everybody get it already and some die and, and so be it. I understand the impulse. I really do. If we could, if you could just rip off the Band-Aid without just sort of maybe dying or maybe your loved one dies or you've got to encourage other people to be willing to die. And on a national level, on a national level, we see things playing out in an interesting way, too. I mean, this is the first real trial of the new non-existent federal government or global supply chain. This is part of what the little to no government that uh, we elected into the White House, this is part of that ethos. That's the current administration's idea as it plays out is this kind of Ayn Rand idea where states and cities and localities really have to take care of themselves. That's part of the object of the game here is to have the federal government do less and have localities pick up more of the slack. And on some level, that's what we've been arguing about since The WTO protests. We don't want these giant global supply chains. We don't want government control. We don't want the Fed and all that. We want local economics. And in some ways, what the Trump administration is trying to do is this kind of a tough love, right? And this tough love, it's only really hard during a crisis. Do I agree with that? I mean, no. But this is why if we're going to see anything through this period. If we're going to see anything positive, it's going to be the emergence of bottom-up mutual aid and economic activity. If there's nobody coming to the rescue, if there's no clear direction from the top, then it's going to have to come from the bottom. People taking care of themselves and one another and figuring these things out on a local level, an urban level, and a state level. And, And I see it. I see it. What does it mean that my daughter and her friends are changing their high school electives from Latin and Ottoman history to sewing and farming? Will the emergence of highly localized neighborhood bartering, mutual aid, and and food pantries, will this change our relationship to, to place, to charity, to commerce? big, one-size-fits-all, top-down solutions, they tend to throw us into these brittle ethical conundrums that local ones don't. You know, when it's real people, real neighbors, they no longer fall into a generic category like the old, the poor, the strong, the weak. It's just people. It's so easy, you know, particularly right now that we're doing so much online and wearing masks when we see each other in real life. It's so easy to objectify and distance and play these kind of big meta walking dead like thought experiments. But we don't have that luxury anymore. You know, we can't do this alone. This is real family values. It's not protecting just your immediate relatives in your house, but coming to accept that all these other people, all of them, they are the true family. This is Team Human.
And that's the sound of Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir, an activist performance collective that's been challenging consumer capitalism since the 1990s. I first met Reverend Billy live and in person when we were both at a demonstration trying to save a group of Austrian artists called Etoy, who had lost their URL to this big bad dot-com company called Etoys. It was really the moment that many of us had come to realize how the internet was being taken by force from those of us who built it and loved it and surrendered instead to business along with the rest of our world. And staring them down like, like Robert Duval in Apocalypse Now was a guy in a minister's outfit calling himself Reverend Billy. And over the years, he and his partner, Savitri D, transformed a one-man show into a church and choir and community and movement. I had the honor of being canonized by the Church of Stop Shopping back in 2011. And now it's my privilege to welcome Reverend Billy and Savitri to play for Team Human. I love coming to both of you, particularly in times of global pandemic. <laughs> There's so many threads we can we could start with, but maybe we should start a little bit with the beginning, just so people have some background, if there's anybody in the Team Human audience who really doesn't know the Stop Shopping Choir and Reverend Billy and Savitri D and what all's been going on. It might be fun for them to get some of the story to, to come out of the COVID reality into the, the glorious early 1990s. I'm interested for people to hear about the origin story of Reverend Billy. You know, Reverend Billy did not come out of a, the theological seminary at Princeton, right? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> so when did Reverend Billy, when did that phrase first emerge? It first emerged in uh, the 90s in conversations with a man named Sidney Lanier, Reverend Sidney, kind of a lapsed Episcopal priest <laughs> named Sidney Lanier. And he and I had this feeling that there, there needs to be a tradition in American culture of a post-religious preacher or preachers. There needs to be a way to get free of the patriarchal God, but respect and um, amplify the, the oral arts of preaching, which are so distinctive to the United States culture. So we started embarking on a, this project. It was in the, it was in the first couple years of that experiment on uh, starting to preach in Times Square on the sidewalk in front of Disney uh, with Mickey Mouse as my devil. We, we created our own theology. And it was in that period of time that I met Savitri and her investigation was coming from another direction. And the two of us uh, founded this Church of Stop Shopping. I remember that moment when they cleaned up Times Square, and it seemed like on a certain level this was good for New York because they're going to get rid of the crime and all the bad stuff. But on the other hand, it was as if New York got replaced by this giant foreign corporate neon horror show, you know, that had nothing to do with, with the, <laughs> not that we're indigenous, but the, certainly the local people of New York didn't seem involved in that thing. So I, I understand that uh, that trajectory. And Savitri, what was what had you been working on right before you met Billy? 
Um, I had been working on the death penalty, a show called The Exonerated. Um, and before that, I really was an artist. I was coming up as an artist. I was in my 20s. I was uh, making my way in New York City as a theater artist and a performer and was, well, dissatisfied, I guess, with the weird chemistry experiment that happens in the arts in New York where, like, you're out on the street and there's all this energy and there's all this juice and there's all these kinds of people. And then you go into a theater and it's suddenly a bunch of middle class white people. Oh, my God. I know yeah. that so well. I left theater because of that. I was doing yeah, Three Penny too. Opera for 70 bucks a ticket and thinking, what the hell is going yeah. on here? So you were working with Jessica Blank because we had her on the show. I was. I was um, producing that show at the Culture Project and doing all kinds of things. Um, and I saw Billy. I met Billy. We started working together. Um, and, you know, it was around the time of nine of, of 9-11. So there was a lot going on. I mean, it, we could look at that as a funny window into this time, right? Or this as a window into that time too. But I think for myself, you know, I, I, I'm a, a commune child. I grew up in community. Um, I was always raised to be in service and to work for the earth, really, in the m simplest sense. So it was time for me to turn to that work. And I knew that. It was just hard for me to give up the arts altogether and give up theater making and the things that I had like learned to do. So this was a good marriage of the uh, of the two, I think. And it's it's I think confusing for some, but maybe in a positive way. Whether you know Reverend Billy and the and the Stop Shopping Choir are a real religion or a satire of a religion or performance art or activism or performance. And I guess I mean, do you feel particularly obligated to even figure out which of those it is? I mean, I think it's amusing to answer the question um, that you want someone to ask you. Um, <laughs> in which, so what I'm saying is, I don't feel obliged to answer that question. I always just try to reflect it back. Like, why do you want an answer to that question? Why would a person need that kind of categorization or compartmentalization or commodification? Right, because we got to know which which shelf of the bookstore does it go in? Right. You know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, we, we have right now televangelists, right wing televangelists as the core of Trump's support. When that happened, I kind of felt like the satirical part of uh, the Reverend Billy character was coming back. But long ago, the, sat the satire seemed to have uh, gone away as Savitri and I found it increasingly interesting to pursue the sincerity of an earth church in the city, a confrontational ritual-based series of direct actions inside of corporate space, inside of banks, inside of, you know, the Gap store, inside of Disney and Starbucks, confronting people inside of their theater, inside of a commodified theater. When we went away from the irony of being um, not religious and, and yet wearing the costume of an iconic religious right-wing character, uh, when, when we went away from that satire, we became increasingly interested, as I say, in the complexity of, of making sincerely, making something that you could, you could pray to, making something you could direct your energy towards a sincere result that is based on love, that is based on service. So going in that direction, it was a long journey away from some of the things that attracted uh, people from the art world, for instance, to 
the Church of Stop Shopping originally. But I would I would answer that differently, Billy. I mean, I, I would say it's, it's not so much a, a project of what to pray to. It's to pay attention to what's actually happening right around us, which is, uh, you know, an incredible community and social project, um, which needs attendance, right? And so um, how do you attend to the, the real needs of a community um, satirically? Well, you don't. As it turns out, you begin to address things in a more honest and earnest way. And that's a little uncomfortable, I think, for an artist to make that shift, like towards the actual needs of the community around you. Like you have to, uh, you know, change the theme of your work because it was something's happening to people in your community. You have to address what they need. And and I think when you start listening to the people you're working with in that deep way, um, necessarily like the satire, I mean how satirical can we be about, uh, you know, state sanctioned killing of black people, like not very satirical. Right. So when that's an issue for the people in our community, I'm just saying that the, the, the project itself made a demand of us, I think. And, and, um, we responded and sometimes it still surprises us. we go back and we look at the satirical work and it's like, it's really funny. And it's <laughs> like high camp. Some of it is just, we were watching a video the other night. It's just, so funny. And I can't imagine adopting that tone today right. in the, in the culture we live in today. It's just, yeah. seems, it seems antiquated, like a relic almost. It is. I mean, I remember when, you know, when I first met Billy, it was with, um, or through the, the guys at Artmark who are now the yes men, you know, and the Artmark people were busy, you know, exchanging the voice boxes of GI Joes with the voice boxes of Barbie dolls, you know, as a, as an act of protest against, you know, male, female role models and, you know, Billy was basically on the street corner as a kind of a of a satire of the televangelist, helping expose the silliness of, of this whole kind of uh, almost this prosperity business gospel consumerism thing. And it was he was a great weapon in that way, you know, that cynicism. But but I agree, you know, and I too have gone from a much more kind of cynical intellectual treatment of all the economy and these issues and all that stuff to something much more heartful you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's strange to see it yeah we feel your warmth Douglas, now it's it is different you were super smart and still are but now you're you're offering some body warmth in your message it's interesting i mean it's important especially for us kind of you know whatever we are intellectual white males to say oh wait a minute this is not this is not the way we actually address real problems i mean i remember when you first canonized me down at, uh, where was that, 80? Is Theater 80, I think? Theater 80 on St. Mark's Place, yep, yep. I came to it mostly kind of as a, I mean, it was an honor, but also a joke at the time. I mean, I had a certain perception of what the choir was and what all this was, and I kind of thought up a little something to say, and I got up on the stage, and I was you know, talking about consumerism, but then as the choir uh, sort of amened what I was saying and responded to it on a level I hadn't seen, I actually, and I hate to admit it to my audience anyway, I've started to get filled with the spirit. I mean, for real, I felt something in my body vibrating and going, oh my God, I get it. This is, you know, you you fake it till you feel it. You say, and it, it, it comes. And then and, it happens. <laughs> and it's real. That was the big change from the, the earlier arty, uh, church of stuff shopping. That was the big change. It was a physical change that I noticed. So as we got 
fewer and fewer gigs in uh, like MoMA and Yale. And <laughs> as those gigs went in the past and we became more and more sincere, the change was physical. We were hugging each other in a, in a much, it was, it was, we were saving each other's lives. We were, we were dealing with life passage events, you know, but we started marrying people and burying people and baptizing children into a life beyond shopping and just rolled on from there. It also reflects something that happens in the progressive world, though, I would say sort of the political left, if you want to name it. I mean, I, I'm sure you recall that there was this moment in the organizing models where the, where leadership was disavowed, right? When the, when the anarchist model sort of was ascendant, I guess. And there was this really strong move to be horizontal in our organizing, all of it, across the board, right? And right. That's everything from Occupy and yeah. the Yellow Vests and yeah. all these movements. Yeah. Well, you know, Billy was like this perfect sort of loudmouth for that situation because, you know, he was a leader, but he was a fake leader. So we could all <laughs> pretend he was our leader, but we didn't actually have to believe he was our leader, you know, which is interesting from my vantage point right now to think about, you know, because I still see the hazards of leadership so obvious today, right? So obvious, but also the, um, the necessity of leadership. And once again, what you see are like these little fulcrums in this kind of work where you have to adapt and change, right? Like there was a moment where suddenly we actually had to be, uh, more responsible to a community, right? Which you could call that leadership or not. I don't, I don't care what you call that, but I think that the Reverend Billy character as a character, you know, was really able to hold this position in the vanguard left of New York City for a long time as this fake leader, you know, and, and more interesting, I think, is what happened after that when Occupy kind of balkanized and atomized that way of organizing and things shifted again. And uh, Billy was asked to be something else. I mean, guys, there's one more thing I was going to ask about the evolution of Billy and the choir. And that's, you know, when I saw and came whenever that was five, 10 years ago to Theater 80, Billy was kind of in in front of the choir in certain ways. And when I went to the Joe's Pub shows this year, Billy is like inside the choir, like this little heart kind of in it. <laughs> oh, I believe in making more than money. We all know what it is. Beyond big debt, there's a super value. An Amazon crushed by a great green storm. A new town is rising from the logos to be born. Oh. oh, and I believe beyond the US of A, and we all know what that is, the prez is embedded like a method actor. Is the star on the set? Has he got his gun? It's a buddy film with God, you better run. I'm really interested to know what was the process to find this sort of new place for Billy as this sort of heart in the corpus of this choir? You know, how did that evolve? How'd you figure that out? Well, I think it, for one thing, our director, Savitri D, directs the choreo choreographic design and our Joe's shows uh, are different every year. And this last year, I was inside the choir for several songs 
we had a different approach. We had no transitions between the songs. The songs just elided into each other, one to the next. Instead of the the cabaret model of the episodic uh, sing applause, sing right. applause. But it created the feeling of this this very organismic feeling, like the choir, like the whole form came into the room, performed and did and conjured, and then this form left, like it was this kind of group organism. You know, was that, I'm assuming that was intentional. Yeah. I mean, we cultivate that organism in our political actions, you know, so I think what we were really trying to do with that show and what we're trying to do all the time now is bring that energy that we have on the street and the kind of skills that we have on the street and the awareness that we have on the street. And most of all, the sort of the gathering of song and movement around our values, right, onto the stage. So that would be our goal. That would be like the manifestation of our integrity. You know what I'm saying? And right. so when we all do that together, it's very powerful. Now, um, my experience has been like that production tends to chip away at that integrity for lots of reasons, because we're in a performance setting, because people are drinking wine, because there's, you know, you bought a ticket, because it was advertised to you. There's all these processes that kind of interrupt that basic integrity. But um, I feel like we're getting better at just holding it and and carrying it through. And I think what you witnessed in this show recently was just, to be honest, like the velocity of our political work, which is, is really so much more intense and kind of more constant than our performance work. Um, I feel like it's way more primary and really is what actually makes us special or important in the culture if we are at all. And I think for the first time this year, we actually were able to get it on stage a little bit. I feel great about that. I would feel better if instead of it happening at Joe's Pub, all the people who came to Joe's Pub came on the street with us. But at the moment, we won't be able to do that for a while. So... Yeah, it's not a good moment for a street protest, I guess. But I mean, let's let's play one one song, which is a great example of you know a, a song that's both this sort of entertaining style of the kind of church choir music, and has a deeply activist message, and that is the Shapocalypse. It ain't the blues. 
it ain't the blues, right? So we will feel the hell in the shopping list, right? The neighbors fade into the super mall. The oceans rise, but I must buy it all. So that's this is you're you're tying consumption straight to climate change, right? Well, they say that the the scientists tell us that do the research. They tell us that more than half of the uh, CO two that's going into the air comes directly from domestic consumption. So we wrote that back in 2007 at the time of the crash, and it still holds true, I'm afraid. I don't think that we've really, that's the remarkable thing about the pandemic, is the end of, at least temporarily, consumer culture. And then the, and then the tragic part of it is that Amazon is really growing by leaps and bounds. They're hiring everybody who's losing their job elsewhere and turning them into delivery people. Consumerism um, became our way of looking at the earth. And that happened after Katrina and Rita in 2005. We started, we started uh, moving away from just our basic idea before that was that consumerism makes us stupid. It turns us into consumers. And then number two, that consumerism destroys neighborhoods. That you have a Starbucks and it will buy out the local diner and so forth and so on. Here it's come- really about the rise of the monoculture in right. any facet of our life, right? I mean, consumerism is the monoculture in human form, right? It's always been an earth issue. It's always been about the environment or I- an ecological question, right? But our consumerism is not intrinsic to our humanity. We're trained to be consumers by a, a media that was corporate grown for the purpose of stoking consumerism. You know, Thank this was you. <laughs> this was an economic model. Yes, we rely on you, Douglas, to explain this in the most pithy and elegant ways, as you have always done and uh. been our teacher in that regard, I have to say. I, I think it's important to stress that human exchange, right? The exchange of goods, the exchange of what I made for what you made, all of that. It's like so basic and and so full of goodness, right? Mm-hmm. So full of the most loving and natural impulses, right? And the idea that these corporations exploited that to the to the degree they have is so frustrating and maddening to me. It's the devil. You know, and what we see right now in isolation, as we all are in New York City right now, it's not just that we miss our friends, right? We also miss those exchanges. We miss the humanity in our in our exchanges. We miss like the little conversation we have at the dry cleaner. We miss, uh, you know, waving at the um, MTA guy when we get on the train. So we can see through this epidemic, you know, like we can see what's valuable about it really. And, and we can come back and make a, make a real culture, not a monoculture. But we can also see the stuff we don't miss. For a lot of us, I mean, I used to wonder about this when I was 10 years old, but I still wonder about it to this day. I understand we need food, we need shelter, maybe we need some meaning and entertainment and water, basic medical stuff. But we don't need whatever it is that all those guys in suits going into those buildings in the city, whatever it is they're doing. I know. We don't really need any of that, do we? Just think about some of these major $100 billion corporations like Coca-Cola. Well, that's carbonated sugar water. That's an industry? (laughs) Right. That's a whole industry? (laughs) And then on top of it, so now you have, you know, and I understand both the good reasons and the bad, why Donald Trump will say, okay, you know, let's, we're going to go back to work in a week, you know? We're just going to end this thing. And even if a few people have to die, well... 
you know, we're not going to stop the we're not going to stop the economy. Yeah, we're not going to stop the economy on their behalf. But they're not talking about the economy that you're talking about about people making and trading things with each other. They're talking about the sort of growth based economy that keeps the bankers wealthy, that keeps people who don't create any value wealthy. I would like to speak to the um, refrain in the Shapocalypse song. It's not about the blues. It's that damn convenience. It seems to me that this pandemic is, I'm not going to say it's good, but I might say it's necessary. Where does it come from? The, should we just say the earth? It's in this time of accelerating extinction of all life forms, hundreds of species a week, um, this growing silence that Rachel Carson predicted, we have with this pandemic, um, it may be that a lot more of us are going to uh, like understand the seriousness, the, the, the life and death emergency, the actual operating evolution of the earth. The earth is making this move now to save itself. Now, that's something that consider just when we when we make love, we have dozens and dozens of products around our bodies, perfumes and stuff in our hair and our clothing in our car. And, you know, we, we're just all our life passage events are just sheathed in products. And, and that's that's what I mean by convenience in that song. We don't see past this wraparound, sensuround series of, of signals that we have. We don't see outside of that. And we haven't for a long time. And we haven't been able to take seriously what's happening with the earth. The environmental movement has not been able to do it. We have been basically so passive in consumer society, we haven't noticed the horizon. We haven't noticed the ecosystems. We're, we're not there. We're not worried about it. We don't think it matters. I think that this pandemic is well scheduled. We're losing our friends. We ourselves are in danger. Um, there's tragedy here. But that's what happens in evolution. Evolution is death and life, both. So I'm, I'm treading on a, on a difficult area here. I mean, I get what you see. You're, you're saying that, you know, in these tragedies, there's still a lesson. Because it's really easy to see, if we care to look, you know, what gives rise to a pandemic like this, the kind of the global supply chain insanity, what makes us incapable of responding? Well, this global supply chain insanity that has made it so we don't even have the basic competence to build a 1940s level respirator in America anymore. Inappropriate rationing of our supplies. I mean, we've been robbed of our basic bottom-up competence and resilience as a society. And we're being told to go back to work, you know, and, and damn <laughs> the work? old and damn the weak, um, you know, so they die, which is fascist or, or I mean, talk about Darwinian, survival of the richest. And it goes back to what you're saying, that the wealthy are just as victimized by this as they are victimizing us, that they still think that they can buy their way to safety, that they can use the convenience model of hermetically sealed American cheese to somehow hermetically seal themselves in a New Zealand <laughs> bunker, right? And not be subject to the climate change and the pollution and the microbes and the revolutions. That's good preaching, Mr. Rushkoff. St. Rushkoff to you. Right. Dr. <laughs> That's right, Dr. St. Rushkoff. St. Douglas. Thank I mean, you. I think it's just a good time to acknowledge how incomplete our worldview is, how incomplete our understanding of larger systems 
is, and be willing to not know what's happening, right? Or ask ourselves questions from a perspective of not knowing and listen for different answers, for more intuitive answers, for more confusing answers. What do we do when we don't know what to do? I mean, these are the kinds of questions I think, you know, as a feminist, I think I have to say, these are the questions that we have to ask now. We have to ask from a different perspective. And like, even in the language around the pandemic, we have to defeat it. It's a war. All this militarized language, you know, so sad, you know, it makes me cry. It's so wrongheaded to approach this that way. It's too big. It's not a war you can win. You cannot defeat it. It is information in a small package traveling around the world in ways we don't understand. How are you going to go to war with a virus? Do you know what I'm saying? So um, I think the opportunity is in our perspective now and in our in our response in the upcoming months and years. And I sincerely hope that enough of us are able to shift our perspective and see differently. Now, when we talk about those silver linings in situations like this, no one wants people to die in order to see those things. We didn't want people to die on 9-11. We were still able to see that our political, you know, uh, balance was screwed up. I mean, no one wants the death and the tragedy. We shouldn't have to have it to see, oh, how amazing it is to have a clear day with no emissions in London or Beijing this time of year. You know what I'm saying? We can see the, the prize what you're saying makes me think of is, you know, I've had this long battle with myself. I've wanted to go back to kind of more pure arts. And I feel like just doing the arts, doing theater, doing all the things I really want to do is somehow self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And when I came to the last show, though, I realized that to get these new perspectives that you're talking about, in order to be able to even take a new approach, we've got to experience this through the body rather than just through the mind. Mm -hmm. And when you come to the show and hear the music and see the bodies and do the dancing, you access something other. Do you know what I mean? It breaks through something that otherwise I wouldn't be able to think through. Earthalooyah. Well, I think that's wildness, right? I think what you're describing is is wildness. This is the thing. <laughs> I think we can charge. I love that word. <laughs> we can charge in ourselves, right? Charging that wildness in yourself and in others around you, I think, does promote a different respect for the earth. I, I have to say, like, that's just my belief that, that wildness, it, it is, it's our job, Billy's and mine, that's our job here on earth is to, to make wildness where we can and how we can. I think that's what you're feeling in our show. And I, and I appreciate your words. And I, of course it means a lot to me coming from you, Douglas, cause I, 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 the breadth of your knowledge is, is incredible and that, you know, how important it is to go to the other side of your knowledge to something you don't know. And the wildness here, I love that word for, for people like me or even worse for totally, you know, white Western wasp colonialist people to experience <laughs> their wildness reconnects them with the indigenous, you know, it re- connects them with the planet. It's like everyone, no matter how preppy you are, you still got somewhere back there. There's still those indigenous wild genes, right? We're all once indigenous in our ancestry. I think that the natural world is, is a mysterious world and it's made of miracles and something that comes from the earth cultures again and again is that they, they, they talk of the, our clumsy translation, the great spirit it's what you always see in the movies and so forth, the great spirit. But that feeling that there is 
an earth that is alive, that is conscious, that is real, that has her own reasons for doing things that you'll never understand. That experience of the earth um, is something that we must get back to, and we have to get past products to do it. We have to get past the, the myriad of signals, false signals that are given to us by, by the marketing, by the, by the corporate economy. Well, we have to get past ego, too. It's, you know, so many of us think of nature as this place where we live, you know, rather than this thing that we are, you know, that we're inseparable from her. It's a hard thing to talk about human chauvinism. You know, it's a hard thing to talk about our primacy on the planet. You know, it's hard for me to talk about it as a, you know, a white lady, um, you know, an Irish Jew. It's hard for me to talk about human chauvinism. But I think we it's time to talk about it and not just like becoming vegan. I don't just mean like don't eat meat. I, I mean to really try to have a perspective that doesn't place humans at the center of every story all the time, that we once in a while solve the problem of the earth and then let that heal the humans instead of always trying to fix everything with the humans and then get to the earth, always putting the earth three or four steps down the road, you know, kicking the can. What infuriates me about this moment is that people have been telling the kids, my daughter, 10 years old, telling her, oh, we can't do anything about emissions till at least 2050. But we're doing it today. You know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden we're doing that today. So I think to myself, well, who, who cares about who are we, is this really about human life? Is this really about, you know, respect for human life? Well, I'm not sure. So we, we have some, we have some hard work to do, you know, some personal work and some, you know, societal work obviously to do on this front. But there's also, and this is the part that's, um, I think, uncomfortable for traditional kind of dry Marxist activists to swallow, is that there's something also illogical and magical about this work. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah. they don't want us talking about God or that human beings have souls. You know, that's the opiate of the masses. But we're saying we're almost as crazy as Trump, but on the other side of things. I mean, Trump <laughs> now is basically arguing think and grow rich or, or you know, the power of positive thinking. It's like, let's just not believe in the virus and yeah. it will go away. He's going to um, beat the virus by his optimism or something. And on a certain level, while I know it's crazy, on a certain level, I admire it. You know, I... I <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that that's something that you just admitted that that's that takes some courage right there. Well, just the sheer kind of <laughs> the sheer bravado. I mean, the, the willingness to just put it out there like that is 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 unbelievable, you know. But I guess another question I have and I'm, I'm I would wonder what you two think about this. Like, I'm really interested in who the experts are right now. Like, I know scientists are, you know, epidemiologists, virologists, like, you know, but who can we turn to now? Who can we ask? What can we do? What should we do? You know, who would potential leaders be like, say, in this moment today, tomorrow? You know, do we turn to, you know, disabled communities who who understand what isolation is? Who do we ask now? And then and then will we listen to the answer? I guess that's the other question. What are the survivors going to do when in a few weeks or months when some of us are left? Will we really return to that old economy? Will we let disaster capitalism sweep over us like in New Orleans after Katrina? 
I wonder, I mean, I feel like it's a bit like life where there are these repeating themes and you have a chance to do the right thing. And if you don't do it, then the next time it comes around, it's going to be that much harder. And then the next, so you finally do it. And I feel like, well, this one's pretty bad, but we have the opportunity to return to a more distributed bottom-up economy. And the experts I would turn to are indigenous people, um, small farmers, um, small business people. You know, one of my uh, listeners and friends, Suzanne, who has a uh, bread company where she makes her own sourdough bread. The, The people who are actually trying to make real sustainable businesses or real uh-huh. sustainable farms are the ones. They're the experts. They're the ones who know how to do something without the growth mandate. And then the question of resilience, right? We know this isn't probably the big one, right? We know this isn't the final test of our resilience as a species or as a society or even as a small community. We know those tests will continue to come. And do we become more resilient or do we become less resilient? And I guess, you know, what are the mechanisms that will make us more resilient? And I think you're right that uh, small businesses, right, resource-based businesses where people have things they make and they have knowledge and uh, expertise inside of that, and then they know how to share it. They're trading. They, they take what they have and they trade. But we have an information problem, and there right? there isn't a Wall Street. Because taking- look at all of this. Like, we rely on the internet so much right now. It's kind of, what's terrifying to me at the moment is like, well... Look, if they took away the internet now, we really are sitting ducks. Like we don't remember how to do any. I got everyone's address the other day, just kind of on a whim, you know. Rebuilding our memories is is yeah, a, is a project right. that we'll have to embark upon. There's some basic work to do. Really basic work. Uh, Douglas, we were our small business um, before our Joe's shows at the, at the holidays and since we have been performing inside of Chase banks. <laughs> Chase. But they're not paying you for that. We go from those those experiences to people and ask them for money. We ask we ask for support to keep doing it, and we have been getting that support. You know, Chase is famously the bank in the world that invests the greatest amount of money into industrial projects that puts CO2 into the air. In the United States, the only rock star banker we have, the only banker that Lots of people remember is the CEO of that bank, Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon, right? And his his kind of senior partner at uh, Chase is a man named Lee Raymond, who's 82 years old, and Lee is on the uh, board of directors. And he was for a long time the Exxon Mobil chairman. And those two have pretty much on their own gutted the Paris Climate Agreement. They just kept investing at an accelerated rate. In the 36 months that followed the signing of the agreement by 190 countries, they invested $196 billion in fossil fuel projects. So they they didn't hesitate. Other banks did hesitate because they thought, oh, my God, well, our country's pledged to limit. And what does that mean? And what, what, what does that bring me down to? And they were like a little bit confused. How do we do this? And they, 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 they slowed down for a few weeks. And then they looked over there at Lee and Jamie, they were just buying everything they could, every drilling, every tar sands, every every pipeline, every ship they could get. They, they were just accelerating every dollar they could find. They were putting it into and they were increasing their market share and became the biggest bank in the United States. And so then the other bankers like said, well, well here we go. And they like ran after Lee and Jamie. So we have been going into 
bank after bank after bank. Some of them are more like branch banks, and some of them some of some of them seem to have heavy bankers in them. Uh, especially when you're like around Fifth Avenue or you're up around the United Nations or certain areas where you're not in the uh, HQ on Park Avenue. You're in a bank that has more middle management heavy people, private equity banks where there are wealthy people sitting at, at desks looking at the screen, moving their money around and so forth. And we just go in and we sing. And we always have a angle, a prop, a story. Savitri and I think during the week and we come up with uh, a costume, or we have that big 15-foot, uh, uh, that blue marble picture of the earth that was on the back of the Theater 80 shows. Remember, that was our uh -huh. background. We still have that. We'll put that on the ground. On one occasion, we slept. This is Savitri's idea. We all slept around the earth and had a dream in. We called it a dream <laughs> in. <laughs> and yes, they're funny. A lot, of, a lot of our performances are funny, but that is our we're trying to build relationships with people who work at those banks and we're trying to do it with enough banks and communicate enough with these people. Of course, the tellers kind of dance with us. The tellers like the music and they, some of the security guys, they, they don't get any money. They're very low paid working for temp agencies. Uh, it's the back of the bank where they don't like us, you know, the people in the partitions. But the tellers and security people, will they come out and dance with you? Not quite come out and dance. I would say that's a little bit over the top. <laughs> no, they don't. They, they don't. Make, they make movies for their kids, and they kind of clap behind the bulletproof glass. A tame but positive reception. They're smiling in spite of themselves. I can, they're probably glancing around to make sure they're not getting caught. Right, because they know what they're involved in. I mean, they got to make a living. They got to feed their kids. I don't think a lot of them do really know. A lot of them are hearing for the first time uh, when we say we have a whole song uh, based on that statistic, $196 billion within three months in fossil fuel investments. We have a whole song around that now. We just keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. And that's what we call the human flyer. <laughs> if we give people information on a piece of paper, then they bow over the information and they start reading it. And they kind of like they're not so involved in what we do. So we have to keep them up and, you know, dancing with their chests out and their chins up and eye contact and so forth. We get the impression that a lot of them just don't know what their bank does. I mean, that's why the theme of consumerism has remained so durable over this last decade or two, because it's such an easy way for people to understand their participation in this whole equation. You know, it's really the only role that we're being given anymore is to be consumers. You know, we're barely employees anymore. So it feels like a great high leverage point. You know, it's one that's readily understandable that, oh, if I buy this, I'm contributing to this whole thing. And do I really need this? And how have I been told that purchasing this thing is going to make me me? You know, why aren't I already me? You know? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the hazard is that, you know, it plays into this very um, deep rut in the human, in the American psyche, which is, you know, Puritanism. And I think finally that's a, a paralyzing force in us. Doesn't necessarily lead to action. You know, like how perfect can I be? How good can I be? How can I do this exactly right? You know, these questions we're right. raised with them in so many ways all around us all the time. Right. It's always the, the lens of sort of, of restraint, of self-restraint or self-denial. 
I'm cautious about like consumerism being the leverage point all the time because it does that of course runs in this weird kind of twisting parallel with our white supremacy, right? So the two together are really dangerous, right? <laughs> so, you know, you have to push against the consumerism and then back out of it. And for a long time, Billy and I would go to parties. And the only thing anyone ever wanted to talk to us about was like, well, is it okay if I shop here? And is it okay if I shop there? And oh my God, don't look at my shoes. Oh my God. <laughs> they would like hide and we would elicit all this guilt in people. And I started to think, wow, you know, this is really not what I meant by stop shopping. I mean, stop shopping is like a much bigger kind of concept than just, you know, shop perfect or shop ethically. It's really about understanding a larger kind of ecosystem of exchange, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, and it's interesting who this has appealed to over the years. I mean, not that it gives you more credibility for saying this, but there are Broadway stars in the choir. I feel like people would think, oh, it's a choir of these people and they're activists. They probably practically live in the street and they're not. And it's like, <laughs> or they're, you know what I mean? The, you know, the little hungry marching band or something and coming out of their Bushwick hovels in order to yell at rich people. But it's like, no, there's a wide range of ages, of job categories. Races, genders, and, ages. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And, you know, and then when I see the experience of the people in there, I'm like, oh, wow, this one's in, in that. Broadway show. This one's in that show. And this one sings in this thing. And this one's classically trained that way. It's like, oh, no, these are not, you know what I mean? We are not we. I'm allowed to say we. Yes. We are not societies. We are not exactly. At least twice that I know of. Yeah. We are not society's rejects. You know what I mean? Complaining that we got a bum steer. We are the full spectrum of our society saying, no, this has to stop. And we have another option. I think that that's really true. It is it is a movement that is not just based on a generalized you know type of person in a particular position in society of victimization or of privilege. It's something I think that we all have inside of ourselves when we say let's start the rewilding. That assumes that the wildness is in us already, and the natural world is in us. No, no matter how deep. The marketing departments go into our psyche, you know, and they're constantly studying us and they're on they're always finding new frontiers of depth inside of our souls where they they charge across the border and try to capture that other forest inside of our our bodies. We have some of that in us. It comes up as fast as the the Venetian canals can clean up and invite the swans and dolphins back. (laughs) It's also really contagious. I mean, I'll be honest, like the the pleasure one has in standing in a corporation and saying no to it and just, no, I don't consent, Chase Bank. I do not consent. No. Saying those things, uh, you know, together with a group of people. mm, Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to uh, let go of that once you start doing it. Yeah, there's a pleasure there. There's a pleasure there. There is in reconnecting with the wild, with retrieving the intuition and the deeply human, with feeling the soul and realizing that the soul's not even individual, but a collective phenomenon. And whoa, I'm 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 not even here, but I'm most present when I'm not. Um, you know, it's like wow. But it's really tricky to do in a during a pandemic shutdown. We're isolated and afraid. This is a this is a tricky moment for our wildness. But I guess I encourage people to um, go to uh, what's it. Billy.com. 
Yes, RevBilly.com. And download some music. Play this loud, not through your little earbuds, but <laughs> loud in your speakers that hits your body with the noise. And it does take you. I don't even think you have to have experienced it before. You listen to it. It will call out the wild. Earthalooya. Earthalooya. <laughs> yes, you can join. We're making a, an offline community called Earthalooyaville, trusting each other to have direct information about where to reach each other instead of just being supervised by these mediating corporations all the time. Um, and we were building up a co- this community. We were just in New Orleans last year and Eartha Louisville people put us up and fed us and took care of us and paraded up and down Bourbon Street with us in the Latin Quarter. So uh, the final hope of uh, being uh, residents in Eartha Louisville is that we will meet in this this imagined small town in this imagined neighborhood, we will meet the way they, the way we meet in those places, which is physically. We will will be together, and dance together, and talk about how things are going. And I, I just encourage people through this time to you know pay attention in a different way, listen to different voices, and also to yourself in a different way. Maybe keep a journal if you've never done that before or try out a different kind of music. But I, I'd say it's a, the opportunity really is there to to come out with a different vocabulary and a different way of relating. And I, I, I hope we can all do some of that work. And I know it's a stressful, incredibly stressful time also for a lot of people, especially parents who are home suddenly with their kids and trying to work full time on a computer. And um, it's challenging. And I, I mean, I am feeling those challenges also. And um, the very things that would comfort us are not available to us. So I just hope everyone can take care of themselves and each other and, and also, you know, tap into maybe, I don't know, a different state of mind, if you can. Let's remember our, one, one thing that consumerism does is it demotes our real experience. Let's spend time, I agree with Savitri, spend time with, with writing about remembering. Where you can always remember more. If you just spend time with an experience, mm-hmm. let that experience garden that experience, cultivate, more details will come to the surface. And when you do that, you're starting to build up a part of your, of your, of your psyche that has been uh, replaced by Silicon Valley. They yeah. saw our memories as a profit center. That's right. And now we're having, like, we have a dream group in the Stop Shopping Choir now that is communicating about our dreams in the morning so that we don't just wake up and go right to the news and right to the, the phones that we're writing down our dreams together and sharing them with each other, which, you know, I mean, I am a commune child. Like a, a couple of years ago, I would have just been like, no, I'm not doing that. But I'm doing it. You know, I'm just saying like these are resources. And, you know, if you see them as resources, they're available to you. Your dreams are a resource. You know, that's a place and that's a place you can go. I used to smoke cigarettes. You know, I quit smoking. I get to smoke occasionally in my dreams still. Uh So sweet, you know. (laughs) And I say, like, maybe I'm going to see you in my dreams, Douglas. We can talk in, in, and we'll be together in, in, the, in, the dream, in the dream world. I'm ready. I'm Amen. ready for that. And until then, we got Skype. But uh, I can't wait for that moment when we all get to step out of our homes and apartments and look at our neighbors as something oh, other, yeah. other than a, a source of contagion. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you for talking with us today. And I just want to thank the, the people out there in the mega church. Amen to you. 
Oh well, amen Have to you. Have a time. Thank you. You've been a uh, you've been life changing forces in my lives. You're part of what has, has returned me to to my soul and to the arts and to having uh, faith in humanity's ability to retrieve its its wildness and yeah, right. and take Douglas, that to wild. the bank. You're wild. You're wild. Thanks. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guests today were Reverend Billy and Savitri D of the Stop Shopping Choir. You can find out more about their work and music at RevBilly.com. You can find out more about them and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of this show. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. We're in this together. Love you all. was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.